On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some water out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Old at a place called Summer Hills Creek, uh, which was near a little town called Ophira, which is near Bathurst in western New South Wales, in 1851. His announcement was the first widely publicised sign of a new age in Australia. It was the sign of the golden age. He released his discovery to the colonial press and that was against the wishes of the New South Wales government at the time because that government feared a potential law and order nightmare on the goldfields. And by his actions to make the announcement, he triggered off a spectacular chain of events whereby thousands of local labourers, shearers and tradesmen dropped their tools and flocked down to the Bathurst area. In the process, they uh, certainly gave the farmers a difficult time because their labour force just walked off the, the land and they had trouble getting people to shear their sheep. So they were put into quite a spin, as you can imagine. Uh, but at that time, just after it as well, gold rushes began in earnest, not only in New South Wales, but also in Victoria. Places like Ballarat 
and Mount Alexander. And by December 1851, to give you one example, the rush had led to some 20,000 people descending on a place called Mount Alexander, where vast reserves of alluvial gold lay six foot below the surface. And it was reported that the gold that was being taken off the leases, which was being escorted down by security type vans, was the largest quantity of gold gathered in one week, yet received by any one conveyance in this or any other colony under the sun. So this is the beginnings, the, the, the announcement of the, the sign of the golden age. Now when Hargraves made his announcement of the di discovery of gold at Summer Creek, I don't think he probably imagined the magnitude of the impact that that would have had uh, on New South Wales and Victoria and the 50 years worth of gold rushes that would follow, uh, the massive impact that that had on our state economically and socially. But just moving away from uh, thoughts about the, the gold fields now and heading closer to our little passage this morning, let me raise a slightly different question for you. I wonder how many of the folk of Jesus' day who witnessed the signs that he performed would have imagined the realities which those signs pointed to and the new age, the new age of the Holy Spirit and the resurrection age to come uh, that they were a foretaste of. Last week when uh, Rod preached to us, we uh, focused a bit on John the Baptist and we've been introduced to the disciples. Uh, Rod concluded with the section where Jesus said to Nathaniel, you'll see greater things than these. And this week we start to pick up some of the great things that Jesus is going to do. And as we come to encounter Jesus, we see more of who he is as we start to get into this gospel. But the first point that we notice is that he will not be directed by his mother. Whether you think that's a great thing or not, I don't think it's too bad, but uh, I can certainly understand Jesus is not going to be directed by his mother. And so we come to this situation where there's a wedding and things have gone pear-shaped, as some folk put it today. The weddings are a wonderful occasion, I'm, sh I'm sure you'll agree with me. It's a great time, it's one of the uh, joys in life to go to a wedding, but they can also be stressful events, can't they, even at the best of times. But here, unfortunately, the host of the wedding has a big problem. As Mary points out, they have no wine. Now, at this point, one can sense there's probably a bit of tension in the place. It's unlikely that those who are responsible for the catering are laughing and joking with each other at this stage. In fact, they're probably um, pretty serious and pretty tense. That expression about cutting the air when, it's, uh, when the tension's so great uh, it was probably apt for that moment then. And it might be hard for us to appreciate how uh, running out of wine could be such a big deal. But certainly that the drinking of the wine at a wedding was a big part of the, um, the wedding feast in that culture. And in some ways it's the same in our culture as well. But their culture was a shame-based culture. And to run out of wine for all the friends from the village and probably villages around uh, would mean that this wedding was a memorable one, but for the wrong reasons. Uh, and certainly the bride and groom would have probably pretty sad memories for years to come. And so Mary takes it upon herself to go to her firstborn, Jesus, whom she's probably relied on. Uh, we don't know a lot about uh, when Joseph might have died, but most, uh, a lot of people think that Joseph has died, otherwise we'd, he'd feature more in the Gospels and things like that. 
but it seems that Mary's probably relied on Joseph, uh, Jesus for a long time. And now he goes to, she goes to Jesus to ask him to sort it out. But what ty- kind of answer does Mary get from Jesus? Well, it's probably the kind of answer that she doesn't really want to get. We see it in verse 4. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. What we see here is something of a, a rebuke to Mary. Jesus isn't being um, nasty to her or malicious, but he is putting some distance between his mother and himself and his agenda. Somebody's um, got something important to notify. Uh, the response that we get from Jesus here, though, is still in keeping with other parts of the New Testament. Uh, those of you who are familiar with... Oh, somebody's had a baby. <laughs> Not quite. Those of you who are familiar with Mark's Gospel might remember that when a crowd descended upon a, pl- a place that Jesus was at, uh, Jesus' mother and brothers came along. When they found out about the crowd, uh, they came and told other people that your, your family's here. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of Jesus, for they said he is out of his mind. So what we're getting the picture of is Jesus is actually coming of age. He's engaging in his mission as the Messiah, but his family still has a smaller view of him. They've got like a, a boxed-in view or a straight-jacketed view of who Jesus is. And Mary seems to think that she can call upon Jesus to sort out her struggles. But Jesus doesn't really give her the response that she's after. He's not going to be directed by her struggles or her agenda. Jesus won't be directed by anyone else. As the unique son of God, he knows why he came and he sticks to his principles. And so Mary takes it from Jesus' response to that she ought to fall into line. And so she tells the other servants that Jesus is the one that they need to listen to. And so she says to them, do whatever he tells you, verse 5. And then the servants do exactly that. They act with faith of sorts. They go and uh, take these six stone jars. The stone jars, John tells us, would normally be used for ceremonial washings. There were laws which were bound up with purity about being clean or unclean, that people had to take on ceremonial washings. And these, these jars were used for that kind of thing. They were big. They held between 75 and 115 litres. The servants probably went to a nearby well and drew some water until they couldn't fill them anymore. And then they take some and give it to the master of the banquet who calls the bridegroom in and says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, which leads me to think that the wine probably wasn't just grape juice, as some people have thought in the past. But you have saved the best till now. And there's a whole lot of it too, probably around 600 litres. What are we to make of this miracle that Jesus has performed? What are we to take away from it? Well, in the first place, um, as we read through the Gospel of John, we, we do get a, a renewed sense of who Jesus is, his warmth, his power and authority. We start to understand something of uh, who we're dealing with. He reveals his glory. We're told in verse 11, thus, He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. 
Not only has he done something supernatural, something impossible, a miracle that just can't be done, he's also saved the day of sorts. This once very tense and potentially embarrassing situation, he's now recovered and he's restored it and then some by giving best wine and loads of it. But secondly, we need to uh, ponder the symbolism here as well. John hasn't just taken uh, some stories and thrown them together in a haphazard way, like you'd take a stack of cards, throw them up in the air and you know, any way that they come down, you just put them together. He's put a lot of careful thought into how he'll write his gospel. And so without trying to overshoot and read too much symbolism in, we can pick up a few pointers from this parable. Firstly, Jesus takes something from the old covenant, the jars that were needed to maintain the, the cleanliness laws. And he fills them, not with water, but with new content, wonderful new wine. And this is all done at a wedding. And the comment is given that the best has been saved until now. This ought to give us a little bit of a, a feel for something that's already been said earlier in this gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 16, we read that from the fullness of his grace, we've all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, God, when he gave them the law through Moses as the means by which God's people would live as his people, he was actually being gracious and kind to them constraining sin, pointing out sin and, and pointing to the need for an ultimate sacrifice and saviour. God gave the people grace when he gave them the law. But now, new things have come. Jesus is bringing a new covenant age, something even better. And so he's bringing to an end the old covenant, perhaps symbolised by these empty stone jars of water, the jars that were used for purity. And we're told in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus comes to fulfil the law and the prophets. And so when Jesus comes, he's um, a saviour, not just for the Jews. He's, he's not calling upon everybody to take on Judaism. He's a saviour for the whole world, where people will come to God through Jesus uh, and enjoy his final work for their standing with God. We capture something of this when Jesus has a, a discussion with the, the lady from Samaria who talks about where people will worship God. And Jesus says that times are changing. People won't be worshipping God in the temple in Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim. But they'll worship God in spirit and in truth. Uh, and Jesus is the truth. He tells us that. He is the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus does bring a change. He brings in the new covenant age and that finds fulfilment at the very end at a, another wedding celebration. Uh, this might be the foretaste of the wedding at the end of the ages, which is spoken about in Revelation 19. But as Christians, we are people who live on this side of those miracles. We don't live with the regulations bound up with sacrificing particular animals, going through particular customs associated with ritual purity, being clean and unclean. We live uh, as people who trust in the finished work of Christ. We are those who believe in John 3.16, 
whoever believes in him, in Jesus, shall not perish but have eternal life. We're the ones who know that Jesus was the one sacrifice for all sins, once for all, that we might enjoy forgiveness with God. We're people who believe that Jesus came to bring life and life abundant. We understand that the message of the cross is foolishness to people who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We live with this reality. We enjoy a relationship with God, each one of us, individually. But there are times, aren't there, when we can and we probably do take for granted the uh, living relationship that we have with God. And familiarity can sometimes breed contempt. We can sometimes forget what we have and not even worry too much about spending time giving thanks to God for things. Not even taking the time to read his word. Not taking the time to consider how we can have an impact uh, in the world that God is actually having an impact in by his mission. At times we probably find it easy to grumble about a lot of things in life. And there are lots of struggles, there's no doubt about it. But we also ought to come back and remember the good things in life. We ought to remember the wonderful relationship that we do have with God, that we can talk to him in prayer about all kinds of things, that we can enjoy the assurance that comes with living as his people and the hope that we have. The day Jesus turned water into wine would have been a very wonderful moment for those people. It certainly uh, took the stress out of the situation. But that was a sign of the things that were to come. That was a sign of the relationship that we can enjoy with God as his new covenant people and the age to come. And so we should be people who uh, enjoy our relationship with God and even not be embarrassed to sing together or to pray together, even at uh, informal meetings when we're together. It's a, it's a good thing for us to get together and to pray. So let's be people who don't simply um, get overwhelmed by the struggles in life, but remember what we have in Christ and the realities, those wonderful realities. Well, in the next section, we have played for us another example of change that Jesus brings. In the first place, we learn something about Jesus again. Jesus tells us about his relationship with God the Father. Speaking to those selling doves, he says, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Here we note that Jesus calls the temple his father's house, revealing something of the intimate relationship that he has with God the Father. Later in chapter 5, when the Jews are trying to kill Jesus, John points out that he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so, again, we're invited to grapple with the magnitude of Jesus, that we have both someone who is fully human, that was born into the world, uh, but that he is two natures, that he is divine, that he comes from beyond the world. And this is a mystery which is hard to fathom, and it's a distinctive of Christianity, that we believe God dwelt and became flesh. I had a fishing trip uh, a couple of months ago with one of my mates who was pumping me with a few questions about what I believed and what Christians believe and how they're different from other people. And I talked to him about how we believe that God actually dwelt in the person of Christ and came into the world. And at this point, I don't think he was trying to be rude altogether, but he just sniggered and laughed and thought that was ridiculous. 
And I thought, yeah, well, that's that's the reality that we're confronted with. That is the uh, the mystery which is hard for us to to plumb the depth of and fathom. But that's what's revealed that that Jesus actually is equal with God. He comes and dwells. And so we see something of the complexity of Jesus even in this miracle. Or not so much this miracle, but as he cleanses the temple. Furthermore, we see that Jesus is zealous for God. He's uh, keen to uphold the way that God has established his temple practice. Some commentators have pointed out that this business of um, selling uh, livestock and also changing money wasn't necessarily the problem, but the fact is they were doing it in the wrong place. This is mostly, most likely to be happening within the court of the Gentiles where people were sitting, having come from outside Judaism to be part of the people of God and to pray to God. Uh, when they'd be there praying, they'd be hearing the bleating of sheep and the lowing of cattle, the clink of money being changed. And so the problem is this kind of commerce should have been going on outside the temple. But when uh, the Jews asked Jesus for a a sign of his authority to cast them out, they're not really grappling hard with the, the principle that he's getting at. In any case, Jesus gives them an answer that they don't quite fathom because the sign of Jesus' authority, which he speaks about, is still yet to come. Jesus tells them, destroy this temple and he will raise it again in three days. Well, we've already had a hint in chapter 1 about how Jesus is the temple. We're told that he dwelt among us. That's the word tabernacle. He tabernacled among us, which casts us back to Exodus where God walked with his people through the, the desert before they entered the promised land and that with the tent he dwelt amongst his people. He was in the middle of his people as uh, the glory spirit was in the tabernacle. And then when the uh, temple at Solomon's time was built, God's glory spirit filled the temple. And so God's presence was in the midst of his people. He was king over his people. And what Jesus is telling us by calling himself the temple is that he is also God's presence in the midst of his people. But more than that, he's he's telling us that he will be raised He's going to be the first of a, of a resurrection age, uh, a transformed age. And that's already been hinted at in John chapter 1, verse 18, where we read, No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, or God the only begotten, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So Jesus, we see, is the word of God who comes into the world and dwells. And then in his resurrection, he goes and returns to the Father's side. The resurrection of Jesus is the reason why we have hope of being raised as well. We're told that Jesus will pour out the Spirit and enliven us and he'll raise us up at the last day. That's something we see when, uh, I think it's Mary or Martha, asks Jesus about Lazarus in John chapter 11. She says, I know he will rise at the resurrection at the last day. And so because Jesus is risen, he can raise us as well. But it's also important to note that it's not within the temple, Herod's temple, that the once-for-all sacrifice is going to be made. It's within Jesus' temple, his body, which will be destroyed, that the once-for-all sacrifice will be made for the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus gives these people an answer about his authority. 
He shows them that he's got authority because his temple will be raised in three days. But it's not something that they can appreciate there and then. And so they're focusing on the 46 years it took to build that temple. Well, in John chapter 2, we have some signs spoken about, water into wine, and the promise of the rebuilding of the temple. In the first instance, Mary responds with faith in Jesus. The people who go and fill up the jars with water, they respond in faith. And the disciples who witness what Jesus does, they respond in faith as well. But in the second instance, where Jesus cleanses the temple, the people don't take him seriously. And they don't respond in faith. Instead, they just want to quiz him about his authority and put him on the spot. But the question for us is, how are we going to respond to these signs? How will we respond to what Jesus has done with these signs of a foretaste of the age to come? Are we going to take seriously the deep relationship that we have with God through Christ? Are we going to enjoy that new covenant relationship that we have with God? Are we inspired to enjoy prayer time with God, to read his word, to have an impact on the world for his glory? Or will we respond with unbelief as we encounter these signs? I raised earlier the story about the sign of the uh, golden age of Australia, which was the announcement of the discovery of gold around Bathurst. And I was intrigued to see the impact that that had on Australia, on so many people's lives. But Jesus has left an impact on the world too, hasn't he? We see in the history of Christianity that many people's lives have been touched and even today God continues to change people's hearts and minds. As we consider the signs that Jesus has performed where he turns water into wine and reveals his power and authority, we remember that there will be a feast, a heavenly uh, banquet at the end of the ages, a resurrection age which we long to look forward to. But as we consider that reality, will God have his impact on us? Will we maintain our trust in Jesus and continue to appreciate what he's done for us? And will we be keen to serve him in a living and active way? More dedicated to Christ than the gold diggers were to digging gold. May God help us to be people who love and want to serve him more than serving gold. May we be people who appreciate these signs and the reality that they point to uh, and to grow in our love for God and to live uh, serving him and to have an impact on the world in the, w- the world that he's placed us in. May God help us to do that this week. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that we live uh, as um, disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we enjoy a new covenant relationship with you where you're our God and you're, we're your people. Father, we give you thanks that we can enjoy you and know that we can talk to you and have direct access to you, that we don't have to go through Old Testament rules and regulations to maintain our relationship with you. We thank you for Jesus and the assurance that we have that we are forgiven. We give you thanks that we can talk to you about all kinds of things in prayer. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to remember these signs and see the They are a foretaste of a new age to come and we pray that you would help us 
to have an impact in this world, to share this news as well, uh, that other people might enjoy life with you. Father, we thank you for this um, passage from John's day, which reminds us about Jesus, who he is, his power and authority. And we pray for these things in his name. Amen.